Section thirty seven being chapter ten, parts three and four of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 10, Part 3, The Theban Attack on Plataea. The declaration of war between the two great states of Greece was a signal to smaller states to profit by the situation for the gratification of their private enmities. On a dark, moonless night, in the early spring, a band of three hundred Thebans entered Plataea, invited and admitted by a small party in the city. Instead of at once attacking the chiefs of the party which supported the Athenian alliance, they took up their post in the Agora, and made a proclamation calling upon the Plataeans to join the Boeotian League. The Plataeans, as a people, with the exception of a few malcontents, were cordially attached to Athens, but they were surprised, and in the darkness of the night exaggerated the numbers of the Thebans. They acceded to the Theban demand, but in the course of negotiations discovered how few the enemies were. Breaking down the party walls between their houses, so as not to attract notice by moving in the streets, they concerted a plan of action. When all was arranged, they barricaded the streets leading to the Agora with wagons, and then attacked the enemy before dawn. The Thebans were soon dispersed. They lost their way in the strange town, and wandered about, pelted by women from the housetops, through narrow streets deep in mud, for heavy rain had fallen during the night. A few clambered up the city wall and cast themselves down on the other side but the greater number rushed through the door of a large building, mistaking it for one of the town gates, and were thus captured alive by the Plataeans. A few escaped, who reached an unguarded gate, and cut the wooden bolt with an axe which a woman gave them. The three hundred were only the vanguard of a large Theban force, which was advancing slowly in the rain along the eight miles of road which lay between Thebes and Plataea. They were delayed by the crossing of the swollen Asipus River and they arrived too late. The Plataeans sent out a herald to them, requiring them to do no injury to Plataean property outside the walls, if they valued the lives of the Theban prisoners. According to the Theban account, the Plataeans definitely promised to restore the prisoners, when the troops evacuated their territory. But the Plataeans afterwards denied this, and said that they merely promised, without the sanction of an oath, to restore the prisoners in case they came to an agreement after negotiation. It matters little. The Plataeans, as soon as they had conveyed all their property into the city, put their prisoners to death, 180 in number. Even on their own showing, they were clearly guilty of an act of ill faith, which is explained by the deep hatred existing between the two states. A message had been immediately sent to Athens, the Athenians seized all the Boeotians in Attica, and sent a herald to Plataea, bidding them not to injure their prisoners, but the herald found the Thebans dead. The Athenians immediately set Plataea ready for a siege. They provisioned it with corn, removed the women, children, and old men, and sent a garrison of eighty Athenians. 
The Theban attack on Plataea was a glaring violation of the Thirty Years' Peace, and it hastened the outbreak of the war. Greece was now in a state of intense excitement at the approaching struggle of the two leading cities. Oracles flew about, and a recent earthquake in Delos was supposed to be significant. Public opinion was generally favourable to the Lacedaemonians, who seemed to be the champions of liberty against a tyrannical city. Both sides meditated enlisting the aid of Persia. The Lacedaemonians negotiated with the states of Italy and Sicily for the purpose of obtaining a large navy to crush the Athenians. But this scheme also fell through. The cities of the West were too busy with their own political interests to send ships and money to old Greece. Athens, indeed, had also cast her eyes westward, and when she embraced the alliance of Corcyra, she seems to have been forming connections with Sicily. At all events, in the same year, ambassadors of Regium and Leontini appeared together at Athens, and at the same meeting of the assembly, alliances were renewed with both cities on the proposal of Callias. The object of Chalcidian Leontini was doubtless to gain support against Corinthian Syracuse, while the motive of Regium may have been connected with the affairs of Thurii, the rebellious daughter of Athens herself. But these alliances led to no action of Athens in the west for six years to come. Part 4. The Plague When the corn was ripe, in the last days of May, King Archidamus, with two-thirds of the Peloponnesian army, invaded Attica. From the Isthmus he had sent on Melesippus to Athens, if even at the last hour the Athenians might yield. But Pericles had persuaded them to receive no embassies once the enemy were in the field. The envoy had to leave the borders of Attica before the sun set. And Thucydides, after the manner of Herodotus, marks the formal commencement of the war by repeating the impressive words which Melesippus uttered as he stood on the frontier. This day will be the beginning of many woes to the Greeks. Archidamus then laid siege to Enoe, a fortress on Mount Kitharon, but failed to take it, and his delay gave the Athenians time to complete their preparations. They brought into the city their family and their goods, while their flocks and herds were removed to the island of Euboea. The influx of the population into the city caused terrible crowding. A few had the homes of their friends, but the majority pitched their tents in the vacant spaces, and housed themselves, as the peace party bitterly said, in barrels and vultures' nests. They seized temples and shrines, and even the ancient enclosure of the Pelagicon on the northwest of the Acropolis was occupied, though its occupation was deprecated by a dark oracle. Subsequently the crowding was relieved when the Piraeus and the space between the long walls were utilised. Archidamus first ravaged the plain of Eleusis and Thria. He then crossed into the Cephissian plain by the pass between Mounts Aigalios and Parnes, and halted under Parnes in the deem of Akarnae, whence he could see in the distance the Acropolis of Athens. The proximity of the invaders caused great excitement in Athens, and roused furious opposition to Pericles, who would not allow the troops to go forth against them except a few flying columns of horse, in the immediate neighbourhood of the city. Pericles had been afraid that Archidamus, who was his personal friend, might spare his property either from friendship or policy, so he took the precaution of declaring to his fellow-citizens that he would give his lands to the people if they were left unravaged. 
the invader presently advanced northward between Parnes and Pentelicus to Decalia, and proceeded through the territory of Oropus to Boeotia. The Athenians, meanwhile, had been operating by sea. They had sent a hundred ships round the Peloponnesus. An attack on Methone on the Messenian coast failed. The place was saved by a daring Spartan officer, Brasidas, who by this exploit began a distinguished career. But the fleet was more successful further north. The important island of Kephalenia was won over, and some towns on the Acarnanian coast were taken. Measures were also adopted for the protection of Euboea against the Locrians of the opposite mainland. The epic Namidian town of Thronion was captured, and the desert island of Atalanta, over against Opus, was made a guard station. More important was the drastic measure which Athens adopted against her subject and former rivals, the Dorians of Aegina. She felt that they were not to be trusted, and the security of her positions in the Saronic Gulf was of the first importance. So she drove out the Aeginetans, and settled the island with a clerici of her own citizens. Aegina thus became, like Salamis, annexed to Attica. Just as the Messenian exiles had been befriended by Athens and given a new home, so the Aeginetan exiles were now befriended by Sparta, and were settled in the region of Thyriatis, in the north of Laconia. Thyriatis was the Lacedaemonian answer to Naupactus. When Archidamus left Attica, Pericles consulted for emergencies of the future by setting aside a reserve fund of money and a reserve armament of ships. There had been as much as 9,700 talents in the treasury, but the expenses of the buildings on the Acropolis and of the war at Potidaea had reduced this to 6,000. It was now decreed that 1,000 talents of this amount should be reserved, not to be touched unless the enemy were to attack Athens by sea, and that every year one hundred triremes should be set apart with the same object. In winter the Athenians, following an old custom, celebrated the public burial of those who had fallen in the war. The bones were laid in ten cedar boxes, and were buried outside the walls in the Keramicus. An empty bed, covered with a pall, was carried for those whose bodies were missing. Pericles pronounced the funeral panegyric. It has not been preserved, but the spirit and general argument of it have been reproduced in the oration which Thucydides, who must have been one of the audience, has put in his mouth. It is a rare good fortune to possess a picture drawn by Pericles and a Thucydides of the ideal Athens which Pericles dreamed of creating. There is no exclusiveness, he said in our public life, and in our private intercourse. We are not suspicious of one another, nor angry with our neighbour if he does what he likes. We do not put on sour looks at him, which, though harmless, are not pleasant. And we have not forgotten to provide for our weary spirits many relaxations from toil. We have regular games and sacrifices throughout the year. At home the style of our life is refined, and the delight which we daily feel in all these things helps to banish melancholy. Because of the greatness of our city, the fruits of the whole earth flow in upon us, so that we enjoy the goods of other countries as freely as of our own. Then again our military training is in many respects superior to that of our adversaries. Our city is thrown open to the world, and we never expel a foreigner, or prevent him from seeing or learning anything, of which the secret, if revealed to an enemy, might profit him. 
we rely not upon management or trickery, but upon our own hearts and hands. And in the matter of education, whereas they from early youth are always undergoing laborious exercises which are to make them brave, we live at ease, and yet are equally ready to face the perils which they face. If we prefer to meet danger with a light heart, but without laborious training, and with a courage which is gained by habit and not enforced by law, are we not greatly the gainers? Since we do not anticipate the pain, although, when the hour comes, we can be as brave as those who never allow themselves to rest. And thus, too, our city is equally admirable in peace and in war. For we are lovers of the beautiful, yet simple in our tastes, and we cultivate the mind without loss of manliness. Wealth we employ not for talk and ostentation, but when there is a real use for it. To avow poverty with us is no disgrace. The true disgrace is in doing nothing to avoid it. An Athenian citizen does not neglect the state, because he takes care of his own household. And even those of us who are engaged in business have a very fair idea of politics. We alone regard a man who takes no interest in public affairs, not as a harmless, but as a useless character. And if few of us are originators, we are all sound judges of a policy. The great impediment to action is, in our opinion, not discussion, but the want of that knowledge which is gained by discussion preparatory to action. For we have a peculiar power of thinking before we act, and of acting too, whereas other men are courageous from ignorance, but hesitate upon reflection. Then the speaker goes on to describe Athens as the centre of Hellenic culture, and to claim that, the individual Athenian, in his own person, seems to have the power of adapting himself to the most varied forms of action, with the utmost versatility and grace. And, he continues, we shall assuredly not be without witnesses. There are mighty monuments of our power, which will make us the wonder of this and of succeeding ages. We shall not need the praises of Homer, or any other panegyrist, whose poetry may please for the moment, although his representation of the facts will not bear the light of day. For we have compelled every land and every sea to open a path for our valour, and have everywhere planted eternal memorials of our friendship and of our enmity. Such is the city for whose sake these men nobly fought and died. They could not bear the thought that she might be taken from them, and every one of us who survive should gladly toil on her behalf. I would have you, day by day, fix your eyes upon the greatness of Athens, until you become filled with the love of her, and when you are impressed by the spectacle of her glory, reflect that this empire has been acquired by men who knew their duty, and had the courage to do it, who, in the hour of conflict, had the fear of dishonour always present to them, and who, if ever they failed in an enterprise, would not allow their virtues to be lost to their country, but freely gave their lives to her, as the fairest offering which they could present at her feast. The sacrifice which they collectively made was individually repaid to them, for they received again and again, each one for himself, a praise which grows not old, and the noblest of all sepulchres. I speak not of that in which their remains are laid, but of that in which their glory survives, and is proclaimed always and on every fitting occasion, both in word and deed. For the whole earth is the sepulchre of famous men. 
Not only are they commemorated by columns and inscriptions in their own country, but in foreign lands there dwells also an unwritten memorial of them, graven not on stone, but in the hearts of men. Make them your examples. We are reminded of an earlier monument from the middle of the century. A beautiful relief found on the Acropolis shows the helmeted lady of the land leaning on her spear with downcast head and gazing gravely at a slab of stone. It is an attractive interpretation that she is sadly engaged in reading the names of citizens who had recently fallen in the defence of her city, perhaps in the First Peloponnesian War. Next year the Peloponnesians again invaded Attica and extended their devastations to the south of the peninsula as far as Laurion. But the Athenians concerned themselves less with this invasion. They had to contend with a more awful enemy within the walls of their city. The plague had broken out. Thucydides, who was stricken down himself, gives a terrible account of its ravages and the demoralization which it produced in Athens. The art of medicine was in its first infancy, and the inexperienced physicians were unable to treat the unknown virulent disease which defied every remedy and was aggravated by the overcrowding in the heat of summer. The dead lay unburied, the temples were full of corpses, and the funeral customs were forgotten or violated. Dying wretches were gathered about every fountain, seeking to relieve their unquenchable thirst. Men remembered an old oracle which said that, a Dorian war will come, and a plague therewith. But the Greek for plague, loimos, was hardly distinguishable from the Greek for famine, limos. At the present day they are identical in sound, and people were not quite sure which was the true word. Naturally the verse was now quoted with loimos, but, says Thucydides, in case there comes another Dorian war, and it is accompanied by a famine, the oracle will be quoted with limos. The same historian, who has given of this pestilence a vivid description, unequalled by later narrators of similar scourges, Procopius, Boccaccio, Defoe, declares that the plague originated in Ethiopia, spread through Egypt over the Persian Empire, and then reached the Aegean. But it is remarkable that a plague raged at the same time in the still obscure city of central Italy, which was afterwards to become the mistress of Greece. It has been guessed with some plausibility that the infection which reached both Athens and Rome had travelled along the trade routes from Carthage. The Peloponnesus almost entirely escaped. In Athens the havoc of the pestilence permanently reduced the population. The total number of Athenian burghers of both sexes and all ages was about 140,000 in the first quarter of the 5th century. Prosperity had raised it to 172,000 by the beginning of the war, but the plague brought it down below the old level, which it never reached again. As in a year before, an Athenian fleet attacked the Peloponnesus, but this time it was the coasts of Argolis, Epidaurus, Troisine, Hermione, Haliais. The armament was large, 4,000 spearmen and 300 horse. It was under the command of Pericles, and it aimed at the capture of Epidaurus, while the Epidaurian troops were absent with their allies in Attica. The attempt miscarried, we know not why, and it is hard to forgive our historian for omitting all the details of this ambitious enterprise, which would have been, if it had succeeded, 
one of the most important exploits of the war, for Epidaurus occupied an invaluable strategic position. It would have been a useful base for raiding the territory of Corinth and Megara, it would have threatened Peloponnesian armies advancing into Attica, and it might have served as a tempting bait to Argos, for Epidaurus was part of the heritage of Temenos, and its independence was an index of Argive weakness. Should neutral Argos rejoin her old ally, the balance of power would be decisively shifted in Athens' favour. At the end of the summer hostilities broke out in the west of Greece. Before the war, the inhabitants of Amphilochion Argos, driven out by the Ambraciots, had with their allies, the Acarnanians, appealed for help to Athens. Athens had sent Formio with thirty ships to restore the position. The Ambraciots were sold into slavery, and the city restored to Amphilochians and Acarnanians, who became grateful allies. Now, taking advantage of the general unsettlement, the Ambraciots tried to recover the lost ground. But though they overran the countryside, they could not take the city. A show of force by Athens was needed, and Formio was sent with twenty ships to hold guard at Naupactus. From this station he could watch the northwest and guard the entrance to the Chrysian Gulf. In Thrace, meanwhile, the siege of Potidaea had been prosecuted throughout the year. The inhabitants had been reduced to such straits that they even tasted human flesh, and in the winter they capitulated. The terms were that the Potidaeans and the foreign soldiers were to leave the city, the men with one garment, the women with two, and a sum of money was to be allowed them. Athens soon afterwards colonised the place. The siege had cost two thousand talents. Meanwhile the Athenians had been cast into such despair by the plague that they made overtures for peace to Sparta. Their overtures were rejected, and they turned the fury of their disappointment upon Pericles, who had returned unsuccessful from Epidaurus. He was suspended from the post of Strategos, to which he had been elected in the spring. His accounts were called for and examined by the council, and an exceptionally large court of 1,501 judges was impanelled to try him for the misappropriation of public money. He was found guilty of theft to the trifling amount of five talents. The verdict was a virtual acquittal, though he had to pay a fine of ten times the amount, and he was presently re-elected to the post from which he had been suspended. He was, in truth, indispensable. All the courage, all the patience, all the eloquence of the great statesman were demanded at this crisis. He had to convince Athens that the privileges of her imperial position involved hardships and toils, and that it was dangerous for her to draw back. The position of the imperialist is always vulnerable to assaults on grounds of morality, and the peace party at Athens could make a plausible case against the policy of Pericles. But the imperial instinct of the people responded, in spite of temporary reactions, to his call. Athens was not destined to be guided by him much longer. He had lost his two legitimate sons in the plague, and he died about a year later. In his last years he had been afflicted by the indirect attacks of his enemies. Phidias was accused of embezzling part of the public money devoted to the works on the Acropolis in which he was engaged, and it was implied that Pericles was cognizant of the dishonesty. Phidias was condemned. Then the philosopher Anaxagoras was publicly prosecuted for holding and propagating impious doctrines. 
Pericles defended his friend, but Anaxagoras was sentenced to pay a fine of five talents, and retired to continue his philosophical studies at Lampsacus. The next attack was upon his mistress, Aspasia, who was charged with impiety. The pleading of Pericles procured her acquittal, and in the last year of his life the people passed a decree to legitimize her son. The latest words of Pericles express what to the student of the history of civilization is an important feature of his character, his humanity. No Athenian ever put on black for an act of mine. End of chapter 10, part 4. This recording is in the public domain.